Today's episode of No-Till Flowers is brought to you by Growing for Market magazine. Want to know the top 10 most profitable flowers to grow on a limited acreage? How to manage a greenhouse for cut flowers? Or how to structure a profitable farm business? Learn all of that and more by subscribing to Growing for Market magazine. Founded by the flower farmer author Lynn Bozinski, Growing for Market is celebrating 30 years of helping local food and flower growers succeed with articles written by industry leaders like Elliot Coleman, Aaron Benzikane, and Jean-Martin Fortier. By farmers, for farmers. Plus, subscriptions start at only $30 per year. Whether you do farmer's markets, local wholesaling, a CSA, or dream of starting a farm, check them out today at growingformarket.com. Request a free sample print or digital copy from the website, and podcast listeners can get a new subscriber discount of 25% off when using the code SOIL when subscribing at growingformarket.com. Again, that code is SOIL. And I want to throw in just a personal off-script plug here to say how much I value my own subscription to Growing for Market. Editor Andrew and his team put together a fantastic collection of articles for each issue. There's always flower-related content, but to be honest, I find the stories about employee management and small farm equipment and so many other topics just as valuable. So that's a big two thumbs up for me here, personally. Today's show is also brought to you by Farmer's Friend. It's no secret that almost everything grows better in a tunnel. Bring the benefits of greenhouse production to your veggie or flower farm in an affordable and easy-to-assemble package from Farmer's Friend Caterpillar Tunnel Kits. They're quick to build and move, come in a variety of styles and sizes, and include everything you need to make installation a breeze. Can attest to this, I own two of these tunnels myself, and they are super easy to put up and take down as needed. Plus, if you order two or more tunnels of any size, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. Also, be sure to check out Farmer's Friend's growing selection of small farm tools and supplies like the pyro weeder, silage tarps, landscape fabric, row covers, shade cloth, irrigation kits, and more. If you are ready to increase efficiency on your farm and earn higher profits with less work, visit FarmersFriend.com today. Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your nerdy host, Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers. I created this podcast to drill into the details of truly natural farming, be it no-till or biostimulants or whatever, as it relates to flower farming. I felt like there was a void in the industry for this kind of information. And since I'm in my third season of no-till here on my farm and I still have lots of questions, I thought this podcast would be a great way for me to ask those questions and hopefully get some good answers from our guests. So let's get started. I can hardly believe we are at the season finale for this first season of the No-Till Flowers podcast. I have learned so much along the way, both about hosting a podcast and about sustainable flower farming, and I can't wait to keep going. When I started this podcast project, it had two dual missions. One is obvious in the title, to air thoughtful discussions on no-till farming practices. But the second mission might not have been as obvious unless you've been binge listening, something I fully endorse. I wanted this podcast to capture the voices of some flower farmers much more experienced and wiser than myself. The ones that have mentored me in one way or another over the years. I've been so fortunate to have their sage advice to guide my steps 
and it has been important to me to acknowledge how much they have contributed to my own success and to generally just point to them publicly and exclaim, that farmer rocks. <laughs> One of those farmers is today's guest, Joe Schmidt. Now retired, Joe at one point was running a 60-shop bucket run to florists around Madison and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in addition to a highly in-demand flower CSA. He is well known in the ASCFG ranks as one of the most thoughtful and inventive members of its old guard. His German grandfather, an immigrant in Maryland in the early 1900s, was one of the very first commercial carnation growers in the US. His father then ran a large refrigerated trucking company for the wholesale flower market in New York City in the 50s and 60s. And Joe himself has tried his hand at flower farming in Delaware, West Virginia, and eventually settled in Wisconsin to spend nearly 30 years growing on three acres there. To say the man has seen and done just about everything there is to see and do in the floral industry is not an exaggeration. In this episode, Joe tells his personal story while peppering it with tons of incredibly useful information for today's small scale flower farmer. In particular, we dig into three pieces of equipment that allowed him to farm efficiently without so much wear and tear on his body over the years. We also talk about ornamental grains and grasses and how much potential there is for this plant group to make a flower farm some easy money. And we talk about making decisions today that will allow a farmer to eventually retire. Spoiler alert, Joe is now living that hashtag van life dream thanks to a smart business decision he made way back in 2002. Lots of links in the show notes to the various machines and crops Joe mentions throughout, so be sure to click over there at the end so you can grab those instead of spending hours on Google searches. As with all my guests this season, I just have to say a heartfelt thank you to Joe for sharing so generously during this show and also throughout the years. I would not be the grower I am today without him. As spring comes and seed starting begins, my focus will shift back to my farm and away from the podcast. But I'll still be dishing out content on the at no-till flowers Instagram feed, so make sure to follow along there if you haven't already. All right, let's go chat with Joe. On today's podcast show, I am very excited to, this is the season finale, and I'm excited to cap it off with Joe Schmidt of all people. He is legendary within the flower growing world. The name resonates across the halls, <laughs> and Joe is what I consider to be the kind and wise king of small-scale flower growing, um, who just has tremendous historical value in his brain. He's retired now, but he used to run Fairfield Flowers in Wisconsin, and I'm just incredibly grateful that Joe is here. So welcome, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Happy to do this. <laughs> I probably made you blush with that introduction, but <laughs> it's all true. <laughs> I know you're more of a quiet and reserved soul, so I, I know it's taken, um, taken some uh, courage to come on to the show, and I appreciate that. So Let's start with if you could give me and listeners a rundown of what your 
where what your farm scale was back when you were growing and how long have you been retired? And then ultimately I want to talk about your whole family history, but let's just start with your farm. How long did you grow at your farm and what scale was it? And when did you retire? Start with those nuggets. I was um, actually a stay-at-home stay dad taking care of four kids and uh, a neighbor of mine wanted to start a vegetable CSA and asked if I would help them out having had a lot of experience in market gardening and growing flowers and so on and back in the day. So I was glad to do that because I was getting a little stir crazy staying at home all the time. Um, <laughs> so I agreed and I started, I helped them start uh, Vermont Valley Community Farm back in 1994. And um, after which started with 50 shares, and by the time they were done, ended up with 1,400 shares in short order. Holy, <laughs> wow. So they knew what they were doing, and I was fun. I had fun being part of that. Not not a, an investor other than in time, and for that, I got paid okay. back in land to use later on. So after a year of working in vegetables and toting lugs full of freshly dug potatoes, I remembered how light flowers are in comparison. <laughs> I, I think I want to grow some flowers. So I, I begged for, oh, I don't know, maybe seven or 800 bed feet of space. And I planted that it was along the edge of the vegetable fields. And I started a flower share to add to the, to the CSA. Uh, vegetables mm, there. Nice. And that worked out nicely. Um, I, it was only about 10 to 15% of the vegetable um, shareholders opted for the flowers also because I didn't make it cheap because I knew I had to make money at it. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, I planted a lot of stuff in order to make this thing different every week and interesting every week. Um, so I had a lot of leftovers that ended up just getting thrown away, given away, so on. Um, and I walked into our local co-op here, which I lived a block from in Madison. The farm was a 45 minute commute, by the way, and remained so for, oh, wow. for 20 years or so. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Okay, I've got questions about <laughs> that, but keep going. <laughs> um, so I walked into the local co-op in July and I saw ratty pom-poms from Ecuador in there for sale and I thought, this is crazy. I'm throwing away <laughs> fresh, locally grown, organically mm. grown, beautiful flowers every day and they're selling pom-poms from Ecuador. And so I approached them about selling some of my excess through them and I did started that immediately. And of course I kept growing the flower share and, and uh, continued to have excess stuff because I liked to try all kinds of things. So I just started looking around for other uh, flower shop customers. And over the space of a few years, I had nailed down 60 regional flower shops that I visited twice a week. Wow. I actually had three runs a week and I varied where I went on those runs. Some, some places got visited three times, others just once. But, uh, oh my goodness, that, that's a lot. That was a bigger route than I realized you had. That's a very intensive route. Yeah, 
Yeah, so it, um, uh, I think what the longest route was almost 200 miles actually. A big, a big loop or as far away from, from Madison that I could get in a day's drive from the time the first shop opened till the time the last one closes, which is what defines a, a bucket. How far you can go. <laughs> how a bucket run works. Um, Great. So I cut one day, sell the next cut, sell, cut, sell, plus fitting in the, the um, you know, 150 or 200 bouquets I was selling at the same time too. So it was busy and uh, a lot of hard work. I had four or five high school kids working for me um, at that time, and they were wonderful. They were, they were rural kids who understood how to work. They were friends with each other, and they just had a great time working. They, I, you know, I let them work close together, and they talked and sang and fooled around, and, but they always the job done and usually got it done faster than I ever expected. And uh, wow. when it came time to build the bouquets, uh, my my shop at the farm was a, a refurbished milk house, uh, which was at about 50 degrees. And I would put all the flowers in and all four or five of them and close the door and let them crank up the sounds and <laughs> go weed or something. And I'd come back and everything would be assembled, uh, sleeved, labeled, sorted to the proper buckets, and they were great. So don't be afraid to hire high school kids. <laughs> they. Well, I, uh, I, I would like to say that too, but now I'm afraid in the day of social media that they just stand around on their phones, <laughs> but I could be wrong. It could be a little <laughs> different, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you were able to let go of control. That's one thing I've always struggled with as a grower. I'm like, oh, I should make the bouquets. I, I you know, like that's the finished product. And I, I love hearing, you know, somebody who clearly is so successful as you were able to just be like, here, high school kids, you make the bouquets. Well, I just <laughs> and it all got done. Training them, but after yeah. a while, it, it, it's not just that you trust them. It's like, you don't want to watch this process. <laughs> 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 you want to do something <laughs> calm and peaceful elsewhere and let them figure it out. And that just worked. let them do it. Yeah. Okay. Did they stick around from year to year or did oh, you yeah. have like a new yeah. crop of Actually, kids? Actually, yeah. there were, you know, extended families almost. So, and, and those oh, wow. friends, so they like to be together and yeah, that worked quite well. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. I think it was, um, Mike Hutchinson, too, from Robin um, Hollow Farm, told me before about how he liked to hire a lot of high school kids that know each other, uh -huh. you know, and just kind of go down through the ranks. And um, that does seem to really work well. I like it. Then my other key employee was uh, a musician from Mali who spoke no English. He spoke, spoke only Bambara. And, wow. And... Uh, and he wore a wool cap in August out in the field and a sweat, several sweatshirts. Uh, he, <laughs> he was so good at weeding, so good. And uh, I just, mind boggling how hard he worked. And, and wow. so, uh, again. How did, you, how did you communicate with him if you didn't speak the same language? Was uh, that just hard? by showing him. Just pointing yeah. at I mean, After okay. a while, he picked up a few words. But not many, and he's been in 
Madison now for, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so, and he still doesn't speak much English, but he's a heck of a singer. Wow. <laughs> he's making a living at that now. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. So what size did you have to scale up to to be able to run a 60-shop bucket run and do that many bouquets for the co-op? Yeah, I had about week? three acres. Three acres, okay. Um, however... Uh, around about exactly in 2006 in March, I had a heart attack, or so they tell me. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and a triple bypass. Think oh. about that timing, March. I've got like 40,000 plants already started, maybe 50,000. <laughs> and I've got $10,000 in prepaid CSA flower shares. <laughs> Oh my goodness. All the oh checks goodness. are in the bank and I have this bypass. So obviously that put a little kink in the season. Um, the hardest part was refunding $10,000. So you had to, you just decided to, yeah, what did you do? Yeah. Tell me, tell me everything. Cause I think this is one of those like scenarios that every farmer has to think about. Like, what's the resiliency in the plan? Yeah. Where Who could take over if you have a heart attack? Is there a way to take over or do you just refund it all and take I the refunded off? all yeah. of the, the bouquet shares. I, uh. My kids and helpers kept things going in the field. I, I scaled down to one acre. Um, and I just plain dropped this, this CSA share because even though it was a smaller percentage of the business, it was it took up more of the energy, Time, um, yeah. and it also and and it, it was a pressure that that selling on a bucket run doesn't have. On a bucket run, you cut what you think you can sell, you sell what you can, and you throw away the rest or give away the rest. The way I dealt with the surplus back then is one of my kids sold the surplus out in front of my house here in Madison and made themselves like 50 or $60 a week, you know, which was uh, awesome. good for them. And, yeah. Um, but uh, I just decided it, you know, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't sustain that because of the, obviously the stress of the scale of the business was probably part, partly behind the heart attack. I think it's mostly genetic, yeah. but Anyway, um, so I, I couldn't work very much at first. I, I took a, uh, a long road trip, actually, then. We went up to Canada, to Gaspé, and uh, the rest of French Canada. And I, yeah. I pressure tested my triple bypass results by eating poutine up there to see how well it worked. Uh, and Always the risk taker. <laughs> And it worked really well. <laughs> and I got to say that was the best plumbing job I ever had because this is now nice. Uh, what, 15 years later and no issues at all. So anyway. Good, good. I'm so glad. So after a triple bypass around the 1st of April, I was back in the field in July. And oh my, goodness, my no. daughter would help me turn the rototiller around because that took some strain, which would yeah. uh, risk popping those wires in your sternum, you know, with yeah. so, yeah. so, so 
Yeah, she would walk down the the length of the bed with me. We'd get to the end. She would, she and I would together turn the thing around and make the pass going back. And uh, I also had, you know, other machinery, particularly this dragon that I bought in I don't know when ninety six maybe. I don't know if you know about okay. that or not. It's a Swedish machine. So it's a machine that lets me do let me do a lot of No, I don't know. Tell tell us all. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So I started with the farm in ninety four, started growing flowers in ninety five for the farm. And then ninety six, somebody from the university who was helping us to work out labor saving techniques at the CSA in vegetables. Um, discovered that there was a machine in Sweden that had a really sweet looking lie down, very ergonomically beautiful cushioned platform on a machine that was on tracks, like a, like a little tank <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and showed it to me. And I, I was considering using it to build a spinach picking cart. Um, oh. And I said, I want one of those. <laughs> <laughs> we found out how much they were and at the time it was about six thousand dollars and uh not only was it the first one in the country i had to figure out how to define it for export so we could bring it into the country as a farm yeah. machine which would waive all of the heavy duty that right. they would charge for other sorts of machines so um so we brought in two of them. The, the university bought one and I bought one. And um, it was the best decision ever in my life. And had I, maybe the one thing I would change in my life is I would have had one of those back when I was growing flowers with my parents, but they probably didn't exist then. So uh, it's a machine. So how did you use this machine though? So it's like a laying, and I'll make sure to put a picture on the podcast so everybody can see, but what what was the functionality was it for weeding or you could use it for harvesting it or what not at all what could you do with this thing um, oh, okay okay although if you grew something short enough like candy tuft you presume you probably could and the newer ones okay they they've since switched from tracks to wheels and they've also incorporated a sort of a quick vertical adjustment so you could you could adjust the height above the ground much quicker now than you used to be able to. When I, the one I had uh, was was a fairly fixed height. I mean, there were pins, and you could jack it up and change it, but it would be a you know uh, a bit of an ordeal. So anyway, I used okay. it first just for planting and weeding. So I would have a, a tray in front of me. They they the machine comes with two trays, and those were for like harvesting. Oh, cucumbers or strawberries or okay, and these things were made to gang together actually, so you could actually have four or five of these units across and just one motorized section, so a whole oh, wow. crew could be picking strawberries in a field. It's an ingenious idea. Um, yeah, now that I think about strawberry picking, that I'm getting much better visual now yeah. about how that could really. Yeah. There's nothing worse than strawberry picking. <laughs> so there have been there have been machines that you lie down. I mean, or implements that you lie down on for years in this country for picking uh, spinach or strawberries or whatever. But they they were 
really rude, uh, you know, basically a board on wheels pulled behind a tractor or something like that. And it is, that is so uncomfortable. And even, mm -hmm. yeah. even a cushioned flat board on wheels is really uncomfortable. Um, one, uh, one of the early ASAFG conferences up in Vancouver had a Dutch greenhouse that had a, a thing. It was so clever too, but but this was even, but my machine was better. Uh, they had rails. They had rails on either side of the path in the greenhouse beds, and on those rails, uh, which they used for harvest carts, they would harvest snapdragons okay. into into canvas slings on wheels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But if you but they also had a cart which spanned the bed and used the same rails to, to set their plants with. So they transplanted off of a basically what was a hammock on, on little wheels or on tracks. But, and I, I tried it out after having bought mine and yeah, it's better than bending over, but boy, it, it's not right. <laughs> it is. Dark. So you had the cushiest, cushiest well, ride this, in town this, basically. This thing from, from uh, Sweden has every possible adjustment you could want from you know, from the angle of the, your knees, knees to your thighs, your thighs to your back, your back to your shoulders, and then including a little wraparound headrest that would hold your forehead up if you wanted to. Wow. Um, I did end up stripping off a lot of that front end stuff because after a while I developed sort of like the same muscles that cows have to graze with, you know. There's a, <laughs> they have a grazing tendon. Uh, well, right. without all that stuff in front, it gives you a lot more motion, side to side motion. Yeah. It made it a lot easier to say to plant four bed, four rows across in a bed. Uh, so I eventually stripped all that stuff off. But, but the other part, okay. especially the bend between your knees and your back is crucial. And, and yeah. the shoulder and the, the chest pad, they all, uh, you know, make a huge difference in in that so yeah i could i could basically be with my nose to the ground all day long and stand up at the end of the day and still feel fine you know feel fine yeah wow so that's, so and they still make this machine then like that's still available if anybody it wants is available. To buy one? it's running more like ten thousand or so now and it's on wheels uh and the company that makes it is called pendragon and enterprises p-e-n D-R-A-G-O-N, I think, is how he spells it. Yeah. The machine itself is called a Drangen, D-R-A-N-G-E-N. And that's the Swedish word for field hand. Ah. So check it out. Gotcha. Okay, I'm writing that down. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to include that in the show notes so people can can link there directly and see. So it, that sounds like, I mean, it, it must have put so much... Um, uh resilience into your own body for farming for so many years that's oh, like absolutely. a great example of how taking care of your own health means that your farm is ultimately more sustainable and, and resilient yeah. yeah i mean there's there's probably little that's harder than flower farming <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know grain farming you're in a sixty thousand dollar combine or you know air planter yeah. or and a lot of farmers do have very crooked backs, I gotta say, and it's probably from sitting on a tractor all the time. Um, yeah. 
but you know nobody's slinging bales ahead anymore nobody's hoisting yeah. much weight but right. but we're hoisting five right. gallon buckets full of flowers all the time and six gallon and seven gallon yep. buckets full of flowers which i preferred for snaps you know um, so, yeah 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 I get asked a lot by new and inspiring um, retiree growers, people that have been doing something else as a career and then want to take up flower farming, if it will be, you know, something they can achieve um, at their stage in life. And I always want to be very encouraging for anybody trying a new career path. And I think that flower farming can make you very healthy in some ways <laughs> because you stay active and you're outside a lot. But then there's definitely going to be um, issues with, um, you know, back injuries, you know, hurting back and picking up a lot of weight and all the bending over. And it sounds like this um, dragon might be a great solution if somebody wants to get into this and already has some limitations physically and, and wants to um, still flower farm. Then maybe this is the investment that they need to make up front. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's basically anything that you have to bend over for uh, other than cutting tall stuff is it's it will do the trick so I eventually used it for transplanting I, well I should back up a little bit and say that other one that that second one that got brought in at the time I bought mine we got two in one box yeah a little on the freight uh, I eventually ended up with that one too <laughs> oh you did <laughs> yeah they couldn't sell it to me and they couldn't give it to me but they could lend it to me forever so <laughs> nice I was lent that forever uh, until I retired and I've now lent it to somebody else who has it forever um, wow <laughs> can I can I be the next person on the list of who gets to rent it and lend it forever <laughs> you have to talk to Mary Jo about that <laughs> Oh, okay. Now I know where to go. <laughs> He's younger than you, so I think. Oh, <laughs> well, maybe about the same age. Not sure. It's hard to tell. About the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so did you have a tractor as well? Tractor as well, or did the dragon sort of function as your biggest machinery element at your farm? I had the benefit of being on the fringes of the CSA, so they had gobs of huge equipment if I ever needed anything serious done. And from time to time, I would have them chisel plow for me because that's a practice I, mm. I really like done once in a while. And I especially like to have one piece of ground chisel plowed in the fall and ready for the first beds in the spring because that land dries out and warms up and, and the uh, crumbling freeze thaw, the freeze thaw cycle really turns it mm. into perfect stuff for, for mm, rain. Yeah. So and you guys are really cold there in Wisconsin. I assume what zone was the farm it's in? started out as maybe 5A, I think. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. So it was cold. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We don't yeah. Seem to so have, you needed it to warm up. We don't up. seem to have the 20 below winters much anymore. Um so far this winter I think not you know, a few degrees below zero, but not much older than okay. that. Wow. Wow. Maybe that's a good thing for you guys. <laughs> I oh, know I I'm think, obviously not a fan of climate change, no, but I think it would is, be nice. Unfortunately, parts of the planet will 
benefit from climate change and that's going to make it hard for people <laughs> in those places to get behind but i truly believe <laughs> it's the number one priority for all of us yeah yeah exactly exactly time to take a quick break and get a word from one of our great sponsors that makes this podcast possible Flowers are reaching a diverse and appreciative customer base today through farmers markets, CSAs, grocery stores, weddings, contactless delivery, and UPIC. This diversity is supported by the strong community of members in the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Since 1988, the association, better known as the ASCFG, has been uniting and educating specialty cut flower growers across the globe, supplying them with accurate and up-to-date information about best practices for both the production and marketing of cut flowers. The ASCFG publishes the only trade magazine in North America dedicated entirely to specialty cut flowers. It also produces a host of classes and conferences on topics ranging from floral design to irrigation. The connections made with growers through an ASCFG membership are priceless. My own flower business would not be where it is today without the generous mentorship of fellow ASCFG members. Visit ASCFG.org to learn more about all the great benefits of becoming a member. Mention No-Till Flowers when joining and receive a $50 discount on a new membership. All right, let's get back to this great conversation and dig even deeper. So what other like choices did you make over your long career as a flower farmer that helped you stay in the game longer? you know, at least, especially maybe especially after you had the heart attack, like what, what other things did you do to sustain your ability to farm over so many years? Well, my dad was an interesting guy in that anything that he did, even if it was going to take 15 minutes to, he would spend a half hour figuring out how to do it in 10 instead. So, <laughs> uh, he, he had this thing about, you know, let's make this easier, even though, you know, time was time was a different thing, but but ease of, of getting it done was, was important. So he was always looking at clever ways to do things. And I I just have always constantly evaluated what I'm doing and how how it could be easier because so much of what we do is unnecessary. Um, even, even minor things, really minor things. Um, so when I taught my high school kids to put both uh, bouquets together, I showed them how you don't put, you don't um, arrange things so that you have to pick up a stem with one hand and then transfer it to the other hand, pick it up with that hand. It's little tiny things like that, that together make life so much easier. So yeah. the dragon became a way to haul well, oh, back up again. So steps, saving steps. Um, yeah. I, my sprinter, refrigerated sprinter, which I bought in 02, uh, was my cooler. I didn't have a cooler here at my house. Um, so I would take the sprinter and park it at the edge of the field, leave it running. And it's extremely efficient at an idle. It will idle for, okay. it will idle for five hours on a gallon of diesel. Wow. And run the and the run the refrigeration unit at the same time. The whole yep. time. So and wow. that's just how a diesel works. Diesel sip fuel when they're idle. Mm. When they're working hard, they drink a lot. Mm -hmm. When they're idle, they 
They're very, very efficient. So, so the, my cooler sat at the edge of the field. Um, I, I constructed a, on a pipe frame, uh, what we called our field office. Uh, that was equal, <laughs> it was in the middle of the fields. There were sort of three subfields. Um, that were sort of equidistant from the furthest points in all of those places. And that's where all, everything that got cut was brought to and processed. Um, and from there, every, uh, so any stripping that was not done on the spot while bunching, all the stripping and bunching and trimming and putting into water yeah. was done at the field office. Uh, and all of the trimmings went onto a tarp. And at the end of the day, you took that tarp and you, dragged it back out into the pathway of, oh, usually the beds on the high end of the field where the soil was leanest. So basically it was sheet composting immediate, yeah. everything, every bit of waste. Wow. So, wow, so you were just returning all the, that nutrient right, and, directly um, in the life to the soil immediately. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it saves work and it's good for the soil and easy. You know, you can haul, you can drag on a tarp hundreds of pounds of stuff um, without too much. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, and then everything went into buckets there that had been hauled out on the Drangan. I, I, I figured out okay. a way to, to put a platform on the Drangan that held about, I don't know, eight or nine large buckets, five gallon or seven gallon buckets, uh, maybe even more than that. But anyway, um, that would then get driven to the, the idling truck. And then those flowers got taken out of those buckets and put into buckets of water already in the truck that had been filled at home in the morning. So that water was cold and that water was clean. And all of the field dirt was just rinsed off in the first, in the first part of the process. So those went from the, from the field buckets to the truck buckets and got sold directly out of there. They never, they were, it was arranged by, uh, there was no extra step in later on arranging the bucket so that you could see what you had. Right. Uh, this stuff was, was tiered. So the tall stuff is in the back and so on and so forth and bungeed in place. So when I got wow. home at the end of the day, I was ready to go in the morning. That's amazing. Wait, did you leave the truck running all night then? How no, did that work with the cooler? The truck also has shore power. So it has two compressors. Oh, okay. One engine run, one electrically run. So it got gotcha. okay. like plugged in my back door it, into a 110 outlet. It has to be a 20 amp outlet because it drew like 18 amps to start, I think. Yeah, lots. Uh, yeah. But that kept it cold all night. Um, and then back on the road, wow. you know, the, the engine keeps it going. Yeah, well, that's how you could do a 200-mile route then, is because you didn't have to pack anything in the morning right. and just get rolling and, to do and this just run. Every other day, right? Cut one day, sell, cut, sell, yeah. cut, sell, and then Sunday, weed, plant. <laughs> or Saturday, <laughs> the actually, usual. Sunday. Saturday. Yeah, Saturday became my work day. Basically, I had to do most of the maintenance on the, the field, uh, on Saturday, although all, most of the planting, I did weeding in the afternoon. We we didn't start cutting till ten in the morning because this is in was in a, a wooded valley um, or surrounded by woods in the driftless area in Wisconsin. 
which is the area that wasn't collegiated. So it looks it was in the town of Vermont, so-called, because it looked like the state of Vermont. Um, and we had these drenching dews every morning. So things were dripping wet and wouldn't dry off until nine or 10. So we didn't, we, my daughter and I would arrive there at 10 in the morning and start cutting. And then we, we cut between 10 and two. So even though it was the hottest part of the day, um, it worked for us. The flowers at the field office went, you know, it was under a tarp in the shade immediately. Um, and not out of water more than 20 minutes while, you know, accumulated some bunches on the ground, but. Um, yeah. Plus I think putting them into that cold water in the sprinter had to have been really helpful if they're just right. taking the field heat off of them. Right. I and think that's that most of what it's about. Sure. Yeah. And they harden overnight that way. So they had both the yeah. benefit of being in warm water to start with, which actually takes up easier. Uh, and then cooling down slightly in the shade and then finishing that in the truck mm -hmm. and then hardening, which is a, really a thing <laughs> as we all know. Yeah, yeah. The cooler helps your right. flowers. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what did you grow specifically for florists? Like, it, let's talk about the bucket run and how I think that's a dying, possibly dying element to the small scale flower growing industry at the moment is the is the age old bucket run. I think it fell out of favor a little bit, but I also see there being tremendous potential for the bucket run to come back um, as a way of reaching florists. So did you have to cultivate relationships and sort of fight for that business or was it still a traditional way of selling flowers when you started and it was just something you could build on? Does that, does that question make sense? Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I had to fight hard <laughs> for some of these. Did you? Okay. Uh, you know, there was there were two or three well-established uh, wholesale floral distributors working those same routes that I was on, and we often showed up at the same time. <laughs> uh, partly, it was strategy: try to get there before they do, because uh, so you go to your best customers on Monday morning, first thing, and you try to get to the very best ones before your competition gets there because the florists have a limited budget yep. and, and they also are somewhat in, impulse buyers and they like flowers. Mm -hmm. So if you can make them go, Ooh, mm -hmm. uh, I got to have some of that. They will spend their money with you. Right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't make the competition happy. And we didn't have a great reputation with the competition. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. You weren't trying to sell them. So it doesn't matter. Well, actually, there was one driver who was a sweet guy and who recognized, you know, the legitimacy of our business and the, and the smart <laughs> thing about growing flowers locally and the quality of the stuff. And he tried for years just to try to get those distributors to sell our stuff for us because hmm. I didn't really want to sell flowers. I wanted to grow flowers. And, yeah. and I think that's certainly a way to plug into the existing wholesale distributorship that you know you've got to convince these people that you've got something worthwhile to them and some of them have you know waken up to that like uh Delaware Valley Delaware Valley buys local flowers because they know they're good and they're things they can't get yeah uh, so of course there's a little more of a growing culture in Jersey than there is in <laughs> <Wisconsin>, <laughs> than there is out there <laughs> 
yeah, they've got access to a lot of big scale growers over here, but still, yeah. So, but did you, did you send florists like a list in advance or you literally just showed up, opened the doors of the sprinter and they could just, you know, hope for, you know, did you make any promises to anybody or did you have any sort of system besides showing up with a truck? Uh, not while I was doing it on my own. I mean, I did take orders uh, in advance, but not, not many. And I actually didn't like orders because that's pressure. That, you know, you, then you got to deliver. You promise them they need it and you got to show up with it or they're really, really mad at you for a long time. Right. They can stay mad. Um, oh, just backing up to getting customers. There was one customer, one customer who is the oldest established florist in Madison still is, and that's um, George. It's a complicated story, but anyway, he's an old, old world Greek flower grower and there were three brothers involved in some ugly family stuff that went on here. But uh, George, who was probably, I don't know, 85 when I first proposed selling to him, turned me down flat, like three years running, I think. Wow. But I wasn't going to give up. And each spring, because I had some really nice stuff. And and uh, the fourth year, or the, that after that third decline of his, I sent him a Christmas card and I started, decided I'm going to at least promote myself in the off season, remind them that I'm here. So I would do these whimsical Christmas cards, including me dressed up as a gnome, but <laughs> which is sort of uh, typecasting. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Anyway, after sending him a Christmas card, the next spring he said, Yes, I'll buy your stuff. And he told me it was because I sent him a Christmas card. And that, wow. and that he realized that I was acting like a legitimate year-round business. Uh, and uh, he, so he could treat me like one. So, yeah. Of course, he never bought anything at the asking price because he's an old world Greek. But <laughs> he had to negotiate everyone, you know. An extra bunch, if nothing else, an extra bunch. Or, you know, so, well, I was always willing to sell flowers by more flowers by giving away a few because I'm going to throw away some at the end of the day anyway. Uh, that's another thing about the way I did bucket runs is I always knew I had more than I could sell because if you don't come home with something, how do you know that you couldn't have sold more? You missed the sale. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Hmm. So growing them and cutting them and, you know, bunching them, that's easy. It's the selling that's the hard part. The selling. Yeah, the selling is hard. And I think that's what a lot of newer growers come up against after they get so excited about all the things they can grow. Suddenly I, they realize they have to sell. So that's a wonderful piece of advice just to remind everybody to know how to sell your flowers. Um, did you grow specific crops? For florists, was there certain things that seemed to be more valuable to them than others, things that would fly off the truck soonest? Yeah, well, um, I grew things either that I could grow better than the wholesaler had, which often was snaps, at least at the price I sold them compared to the prices they would sell them, um, or unusual things. And I really, really liked grains and grasses and textural items like flax, and uh, quinoa and uh, 
sorghum and cat's paw grass. There are so many grasses. I analyzed once uh, after we joined, uh, we created Fairfield Flowers. I analyzed our sales for the season and uh, what percentage each crop brought, brought us. And, you know, the, for me, Sweet William was always the top seller because I grew tons of it. I always had more than I could sell. And so I sold as much as I could. And it was beautiful and they loved it. And, uh, anyway, the grasses, you know, take any one grass, you don't sell much of it. You might sell 40 or 50 bunches of something and then it's season is over. But I started looking at the grasses in aggregate and the grasses in aggregate, among all the things I sold, accounted for 10% of my sales. And wow. That's a chunk. It is, and they're easy. And grasses they're are so, so easy. So easy, and nothing bothers them much that you know matters. You know, the, the, they might chew the foliage mm -hmm. a little bit, but uh, yeah. So the seed is cheap. They're easy to grow. They're tough. Uh, a lot of them you can uh, succession plant. So I, I think I owe it as three, three plantings of sorghum. I had something like six or seven plantings of my secret grass for years, which I refused to tell anyone about. I wanted to have at least one thing that, that I knew about. So are you going to tell us now? Well, I've already <laughs> let, the, I let the cat out of the bag several years ago. Uh, <clears throat> but even after being told it, it's going to take you several years to figure out how to grow it. So... <laughs> But it's worth worth starting. It's um, um, a Sonoran. Um, it's called sagui in the in uh, the Sonoran uh, Indian cultures. It's a it's a food grain. It's a tiny tiny grain. Yeah. But there are lots of tiny tiny grains in the world, like teff, which is also a good cut grass. I don't know if you've ever grown teff or not. No, I haven't. Um, teff is a North African thing. It really has a really interesting history too to read about. Um, they, they have uh, charted human migration by finding where teff is still grown around the Pacific Rim and it all came from North Africa. So anyway, oh wow, this, this is... Um, I'm actually trying to google it while we're talking and I'm not, I'm not coming up with it but I could be wrong. Oh, wait, I grew that last year. And I think it's probably because I saw you say something about oh, you it. You got it from Native Seed Search. Yes, from Native Seed Search. It's the only yeah, people who yeah. sell it, as far as I know. Yes, yeah, and I did. I, I got it from them, and it was amazing. I do have to say that was it's a, a beautiful really lovely thing. grass. It's so great. It, it really is. It was it was funny because when I, when I first started growing it, I was... Um, because I got the seed because you recommended it on the ASCFG Facebook page. And then I, um, when I first put it in, I thought it was going to be just like frosted explosion grass, which is, you know, so common and popular and, and, and wonderful in its own right. But then, and so I kind of, honestly, I just ignored it. I was like, oh, it, it's just, it's just, you know, regular frosted explosion grass. <laughs> and then at the end of the, later in the summer, when it started to head up, I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I had like 400 feet of this. I'd only planted maybe like 50 feet. Um, and now I'm like addicted. Yes, I totally, <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> yeah, well, you can, you can grow something like four or five successions of that, I think. Uh, oh really? Okay. And the good thing about it compared to say frosted explosion is it's not 
going to perennialize, at least it doesn't in Wisconsin. I don't know that it would be hardy in your area or not and self-seed and become a problem. It's a, you know, it's a desert grass. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, it didn't, it didn't appear to me that it was going to be aggressive at all. Yeah. I can, I can report back on that in the, in the spring if there's suddenly a massive patch. I never had but, um, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I meant to at one point say thank you for that recommendation. <laughs> I forgot about it. So that is, a, it's a really good one. So what other secret weapons do you have up your sleeve there in terms of like interesting grasses or um, some native? Well, quinoa, quinoa is something I grew that nobody else was growing at the time. And there are, there's one that is not quinopodium quinoa is the genus and species for the grain quinoa. Uh, and of course mm -hmm. it's identical in its seedling stage to lamb's quarters, which most of us have mm -hmm. as a weed. So it's really difficult to, yeah. really difficult to direct seed if you have la a lamb's quarter issue uh, because it's impossible to tell it apart. To weed yeah. it out. So yeah. I always grew it in plugs and it's, it's, I'm sure it's subpar in plugs, but it was the only way I could sure that that's what it was when I planted it. But there was one, there is one other species that's not Kinopodium quinoa, it's called Kinopodium uh, berlandiarii. Oh wow, could you, could you possibly spell that sort of kind of for us? B-E-R-L-A-N-D-I-E-R-I-I. -I. Right. Okay, I think I got that down. I will link to that in the show notes. And it's common name, <laughs> so tell us it's about common name is Wazantle. And it's H-U-A-Z-O-N-T-L-E. And it's an old Central American food grain that actually I can buy the seed heads of in my Mexican grocery here in Madison. Um, really? Not, they're not viable seed to plant, but the way it's eaten is this whole cluster of seeds. If you just imagine lamb's quarters on really strong mm -hmm. Steroids. Uh, so you've got you've got a seed cluster that's almost as big as an ear of corn. Um, oh wow! And it's dipped in batter and deep fried and eaten like. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I've yeah, I've had that in Mexico yeah. when I've gone down there. Yeah. yeah. So that's what's awesome. So you can grow that for a cut. Yeah. I never thought about that. So the one, wow. yeah, I've never seen the green one available as seed, but the horizontally I've seen turns out to be sort of this cherry red, which is very nice. <laughs> but it's, mm -hmm. uh, the thing about, about quinoa is the harvest window is real short. So you got to you have to succession plant it a lot if you want it for a long season, because once it sets that seed, it starts to go downhill pretty quickly and starts to look ratty. Uh, What's the um, proper stage of harvest for that then while it's still sort of in bud stage or you want it to go to grain but just have to grab it at the right time? It's, it, I, you'll know when you see it. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> it, it's just got this nice little cluster of very rubbery seeds and you don't want it to, you don't want to see any brown spots starting to develop. Uh, the other thing to know about it is the stem is awfully weak. <laughs> So it has to be treated a bit gingerly. And it's one of the few things I would sleeve so I wouldn't end up with a bunch of broken bunches. Gotcha, gotcha. It's, it's a very pretty and it's something that nobody else sells and you can. And then the, 
the Kinopodium quinoa, the true quinoa, there are some nice colors among that and it's worth trying lots of them. But the, what I found, I, and I trialed most of those before I started growing hosantle yeah. because I discovered that uh, Wisconsin is not the Andes and we're not five that out of 5,000 foot elevation that they like and you know something about yeah about you know 900 feet above sea level in the humid midwest is not the same but the, didn't really appeal but the horizontal <laughs> likes that okay quinoa is another animal but that but um is it territorial or no wild gardens oh wild yeah gardens maybe one oh. of those two or maybe both i've been messing with quinoa for some years and have developed some more adaptable strains of it for those of us okay. who are down at the bottom of the mountain. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I did you tackle any sort of perennial grasses at all ever or did you rely more on ones that were just annuals in your field? Um, the perennial grasses that I sold were uh, the stuff that grew up around the edges of the field. So brome grass. <laughs> the yeah, brome grass. Why not? I, could, I, right. I actually sold, this is a little embarrassing, but fun. I, I once sold. <laughs> okay, we love embarrassing. I once sold quack grass just to see if I could sell it. <laughs> <laughs> and you and could, could, did you? I sold, I don't know, a half dozen bunches that day. I felt bad doing it. I just wanted to see. Well, here's here's an even more embarrassing story, Joe. I'll top you. I actually used quack grass in a bridal bouquet one right. time because I thought it was just the right touch. Yeah. But I felt incredibly skeptic <laughs> about it. I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. The <laughs> long and the short of it is every plant on the planet, with perhaps the exception of daughter, if you know what that is. Yes, yes. Don't it's beautiful. Daughter is scary. Right. <laughs> but yeah, every, yeah, every living plant is, it's, you know, just stop and look at it a different way. Don't look at it as a weed or mm -hmm. uh, a menace or, you know, poisonous mm -hmm. or whatever. Poison mm -hmm. ivy is beautiful. Right. It is, though I still don't want to touch no, it. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I've, I recently, to, to um, just uh, go into a little bit more about grasses and stuff. I, I back you up on the sorghum thing. I, I grew dwarf sorghum as a uh, cover crop last fall and didn't even think about the fact that I might want to harvest it, but it turned out to be a wonderful autumn cut. You know, it came on right when, you know, I was making October bouquets. Um, so dwarf sorghum was really great. And then I could just mow it down and, and use it as a cover crop. So that was wonderful. And then the other thing I wanted to say is recently I planted a big patch of perennialized grasses that are just going to be naturalized off on the, the edges of my space. Um, but I'm really excited about that because I think it's a great way to use sort of wasteland okay. areas of a farm. <laughs> um, and, they could even, and then have something to cut. They yeah. could even double, double, double crop with something else. I think something like uh, mm. casmanthium, the northern sea oats mm. which i did have a yeah 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 uh you know there's a lot it's a pretty airy thing a lot of room under there i don't see why you couldn't have bulbs mm -hmm. earlier there or something right yeah that's a good call you could put like narcissus with sea oats um because yeah. i have sea oats in um shade actually because otherwise it would literally take over 
my entire farm <laughs> see oats are really like my ground like i guess there's something about the soil that makes northern sea oats super happy um so i have to keep them planted in the shade but then i also have narcissus planted it's you know it's at the edge of the woods so that um it's deciduous trees so they drop their leaves and so the narcissus get plenty of light um early in the year and then the chasmanthium could come up right around that so i like that i, I don't actually have them intercropped but i like the way you're thinking and i might have to do that <laughs> the other thing i always uh, like to do was you know, observe what weeds you have and think about those plant families like like uh, uh, red root pigweed, which of course is amaranthus. So I grew a whole lot of amaranthus. I grew like, I don't know, 10 kinds maybe. Um, I also really liked direct seeding the short ones because they, they act differently direct seeded. So like a green thumb, yeah. And um, Eschberg, those are my two favorite shorter ones. Um, now, tell me about Green Thumb, because I know that you like it. I, I've heard you say that before, and I know other people talk about Green Thumb. When I've tried to grow Green Thumb, it's about 12 inches tall. Is that what you mean by short? Because I abandoned did it. Did you, you direct seed it or sell plant plugs? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was direct seeded. I don't think I've ever grown in plugs. Okay. Because it acts completely differently, whether it's direct seeded or grown in plugs. If you direct seed it, okay. for me anyway, of course we have, we have like <clears throat> 16 inch deep prairie black dirt out here. Uh, so it might be a different it soil, be that. Yeah. keep going. Um, <laughs> but when you direct seed it, it basically grows up and makes a very nice feathery plume, very much like a uh, plume celosia. If you grow the plug, it makes a multi-stemmed thing, whether you pinch it or not, <laughs> that, that look like rat tails. Yeah, that's more what I yeah. asked. <laughs> so maybe it accidentally got pinched or bruised. Something. Yeah. Okay, so if you're going to grow green thumb, make sure to direct seed it and don't pinch yeah. it and just let it do its thing. Okay. Or you can gotcha. get away with putting it in paper chain pots, which is a way to cheat right. on direct seeding so you get ahead of the weeds a little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm always jealous that you had the paper chain pot. And I know they're super popular now, especially with small scale veggie growers um, and, and flower farmers are jumping on board too. But my soil is just yeah. too rocky here. So I was never gonna, I don't have a shot at it, even though I'd love to. <laughs> Actually, the same, the same guy who turned me on to the, the uh, lay down machine, um, lie mm -hmm. down, I have to say, or Judy will be mad at me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, also, uh, is the guy who discovered the paper chain pot transplant oh, really? in Japan. And his wife was a Japanese teacher, and he he was there just hanging out while she was doing her thing. And he saw this thing in use, and he so he started importing it. And I bought, I might have bought the first one of those in the country too. <laughs> yeah, I think you were the earliest adopter that I know of, at least. You you were using it way before anybody else that I know of. So I bought a two-row one, and I mounted it on the Drangan. So, oh, you yeah. did? So I had it out in front of me um, and planting two trays at a time. And wow. so any adjustments I needed to make in the covering, those were right there at my fingertips as I went along. Hmm. So I... I would, I, everything on the farm was, was four rows, 10 inches apart. So I would plant two rows up and two rows back in the same configuration. And that fit my, 
my skiing. Hmm. And yeah. uh, worked great. Yeah, so that's how you did all that planting so efficiently and were able to well, that's one of sort of maintain. <laughs> that's one of the gizmos. Yeah. I didn't use the chain pot for more than, I don't know, 20% of what I grew, maybe even less. Oh, okay. Uh, the other thing I made, which also came from an idea from the university, uh, was a water jet dibble. Um, there was a guy out of the state of Oregon who had invented this thing. Basically, it, his was a walk behind, sort of like cultivator looking machine that had a pressure tank and a water tank. And you went along straddling the bed and it blasted holes in the ground with water and air. And, and then people would crawl around along behind them and poke plants in those nice wet holes. Yeah. So, and that works perfectly. There's nothing like planting a plant in a wet hole rather than planting in a dry hole and watering it later. You get, you get perfect contact between the soil and the plug. So anyway. Wow. Uh, so... How does that machine still exist? Well, that's is that a thing that one took of off? the dragons who someone else has now. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it, Joe. I need to get a hold of your machine. So that thing has a 30 gallon <laughs> tank mounted on it for water, um, a little um, 12 volt, um, 60 GPM, I think it is, I forget exactly, sprayer pump run off of a, okay. run off of a motorcycle battery, which you just, you know, take home and charge every night and bring back and put it on there. Yeah. And, wow. and then it had a, I rigged up a, a foot. It's so it's, it's pressure actuated. So when you're not asking it for water, it just stops. Uh, doesn't draw any power or, or run or anything. Okay. So it lasts a long time because it just runs in bursts. Um, then I had a, so the, the dragon you operate with your feet while you're, lying face down because your hands are free to do work. So you have two pedals that, you know, you push with your toes to go frontwards, you push with your heels to go backwards and you combine that to turn. So anyway, alongside of one of the foot pedals, I, I made a, a, a water valve pedal. So the way this thing worked is I had my trays in front of me and this r array of water jets two rows of them. Yeah. And so I would blast the holes, plant, plant the uh, plugs, just poke, poke the plugs in those four holes, move up. Um, now in the meantime, I, I had already, would, so there are eight holes being blasted at the same time. So, <laughs> so I'm planting the one rank. The next time I come up, I blast those same holes again. So each hole gets blasted twice with water, uh, but it also acts as a spacer. So it, I know exactly where the next set goes. So it, it's sort of uh, uh, always measuring out gotcha. the next row and, give, and giving right. it twice as much water. So, so you just go along and you just poke these. Well, I could plant, wow. I could plant, oh, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, Thousand plugs an hour, two thousand a lot. <laughs> wow! Um, and not have to go back and water them for water them. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Is the uh, that is the two steps in one? Is week, part of what's you know. so yeah, it's perfect. 
Yeah. It's a great system. Yeah, so it's almost like a water wheel planter that a large scale farm would have, but you could do this on a very small scale farm without a tractor. Right, and much less mud involved. Yeah, water wheels are <laughs> much muddy. less mud. Although uh, it was very clever what they did at uh, in Columbus there with the bicycle tire tubes around the, the. I don't know if you saw that or not, but that's. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, that was really great too. Cleaning yeah. pokers. Yeah, I um. I, uh, I I don't think I have the money for, for the dragon and then the water jets and all the other stuff. So recently I just bought this um, metal dibbler that's on a, a, I don't know, it's 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 a custom made product by an Amishman here in Pennsylvania. I'll, I'll have to post pictures of it with the podcast, but um, it's like a barrel yes. dibbler. I know, um, bad. And so I can is just, that bad cat? you know what that is? Bad cat makes them. Oh, okay. I, this one's just some Amish guy in Lancaster County here yeah. in Pennsylvania is making them and selling them. So, <laughs> but yeah, they, there are some very fancy ones out there. Yeah, yeah, there really are. <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful. I think it's going to really improve the planting process for us because the way I, I don't use a tiller here anymore. We're mm -hmm, no till, right. um, and we. Yeah, and we make um, the beds by putting thin cardboard down first to smother weeds or smother a cover crop usually, then put compost on top of that, just a thin like one to two inches of, of good graded compost on top. And I'm thinking, I haven't actually tried it yet. This is gonna be new this spring, um, but I'm hopeful that by running this dibbler across the top of that bed, it's gonna you know put perfect hole, perfectly spaced holes, puncture through the cardboard, um, and make planting, you know, a super easy process, but we'll still have to water afterwards. So now like, how do I connect water yes. to this process? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. I wonder if the drip go down before the cardboard. Hmm. Um, no, the drip tape usually goes on top. That would be bad. <laughs> yeah. You, you might have to wait this thing. Is there a provision for putting on it? Yeah. Yep, there's a little um, tray. Yeah. I mean, it's not so little, but there's a tray on top that you can keep adding, I guess, cinder right. blocks the, to. If you the trick is going to be, I, I actually tried to invent a mechanical dibbler before, I, before oh, the yeah? water idea came along. And there are some complications because as it comes out of the ground, it, you know, there's some sideways things happening, both going in and coming out. Okay. And so I was trying to come up with a hinged, a thing with hinged dibble points that actually, you know, slid out kind better, but sort of locked in yeah. place on its way down. It, it gets complicated. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, that's, that would be the ideal thing. Uh, but the okay, water... well, I'll report back. <laughs> I, I might have to like call you and pick your brain about modifications. If you could get that cardboard layer out of there, the water jet dibble, I actually tried Tried using it in a no-till situation once, and and it worked. Okay. Took a little longer. It did. Blast, okay. But you can blast into into untilled ground with it. Okay. Okay. And, I didn't know if that would be a limitation, especially so when you were using also the paper chain pot that was with tilled soil. Or that was were you with able to use pot. that in a no-till. That was definitely okay. Okay. Soil. And that has to be really well tilled. In fact, tilled and then raked. In my case. Okay. Yeah, you need to make it nice yeah. and and loamy and and consistent. So I do know there are even with that extra step, it's such a time saver. Yeah, yeah, and I was gonna say I do know there are no-till 
vegetable growers at least that are using the paper chain pots. Um, but I think it's only after they've been growing for many years and their soil has kind of reached that stage. But mine is definitely not there yet. Right. <laughs> it's improved a lot, but there's still so many rocks. So I have to tell you, <laughs> that'll be... tell you one more thing about the uh, water jet dibble arrangement though. Besides yeah, dude, lying yeah. down and having my hands free and putting these into a perfect condition, uh, consider the fact that I also had a, a, a sun canopy on that thing. So I was in the shade and the plants were in the shade. We were all in the shade to do that. And as well as I planted and often did this in the rain. Yeah, because you had a roof. Well, I, it's several things, actually. <laughs> you have a roof, keep you dry. <laughs> but when you're blasting a hole with water, it's not like putting a trowel or a dibble into uh, yeah. And pulling it out and expecting to do that many times without turning into a, you know, a pile of clay yeah. and, and glop. So, but, but there's no perfect, no better way to plant than in the rain, if you can. <laughs> in the rain. Yeah. First yeah. of all, there's that's amazing. You can't, there's many jobs that you need to do and planting is one of them. And that's something that previously you couldn't do in the rain. So. No, not at all. So could you, if you didn't have your fancy lay down machine, you just wanted to use a water jet dibbler, it, is that you would just connect it to another framework of some kind? Well, yeah, right? I, I, I would want to figure it out somehow. I never had to take the trouble to do that. Ideally, it's going to be something that you're operating too, but there's no reason that somebody couldn't ride, tow you with a tractor um, you know, and have this thing in front of you. And uh, there's no reason it couldn't be done just like a tobacco planter with water jets instead of, you know, instead of the water wheel or so that, you know, there are lots of applications for this thing. Right. Yeah. Well, it just sounds like it's so much more efficient, healthier for you, healthier for the plants. Um, it's just like that kind of thing that we as farmers need to think about ways of doing something besides the usual troweling ground, you know, like on your knees, like the, the ways that wear and tear and take up a lot of time. You're full of like all sorts of wonderful um, adaptations. I love it. But backing up to that trowel, which is like a, you know, 400 year old tool that was very well designed. Um, one of my missions in life is to teach people how to use trowels properly. So if you, oh. anybody who ever went to the Wisconsin Flower Growers School got to hear my trowel rant. Um, is it something you can rant about on a podcast without well, trowels to, to demonstrate? You or to you use your own image. So the, ima okay. the image I used to instruct people how to hold the trowel properly was, was a scene from Psycho with a knife raised in the air ready. To oh, yeah. <laughs> So you hold the trowel like a, you're going to kill somebody with a knife, and the <laughs> and the curve of the blade is toward you. Is toward the you, curve, right? So the concave part is toward the concave part is toward. Inter I guess yeah. Now that I think, okay. So for the record, I do hold a trowel like I'm going to stab Good. someone, but I've always held it with the curve away. No, no, from no, me. no! Terrible, 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 terrible. <laughs> Very hard. All right, all right, all right. Very hard on the wrist. So the way, the yeah. way a trowel is used. As you plunge it in the ground, it stays in the ground. You, you pull that handle towards you and create this wedge-shaped hole in front of the blade. 
The plant goes in the hole while the trowel is in the hole. And then you pull the trowel out. Then you turn the trowel over so that knob on the end of the handle of the trowel is facing down. And that plus your other hand firms the plant. And it's a really smooth, swift, easy motion. Yeah, I can visualize that very well. I like it. And how, how did you learn to use a trowel so properly? <laughs> did somebody teach you? I still have my dad's trowel, and I'm sure his dad taught him. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And a narrow That's trowel amazing. is better than a wide trowel because it's... I'm a big fan of soil knives myself, which I don't know. Whether yeah, similar, you... similar. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I just find them much sturdier for planting than a trowel. But, you know, I'm sure I've been always buying the cheap trowels and... <laughs> You probably have, you know, good ones. Well, yeah, there are abominations available in trowel designs. So there, I, got, yeah. I would love to just like go crazy in a garden center sometime and rip them all off the wall. Rip them all. Say this is trash. <laughs> Put this away. <laughs> oh man. So speaking of your dad, I want to take a little bit of time and your grandfather to just talk about your family history and how you have this wonderful heritage behind you and and the knowledge that you have about the floral industry as a, as a result. So tell us about your family and flowers. Okay, well, one thing I wanna do with that is tie it into the situation we're in right now with COVID and the economy just- Okay, yeah. You know, in an upheaval all over the place. And that basically was the story of our family's life. Um, so my grand, my grandfather, and his to-be wife, I think, I don't think they were married yet, came over in 1906, I think it was, or thereabouts, yeah, 1906, uh, from Germany. They, he had been a, a, a Gartner, as they called it in German, Germany, uh, and I'm not sure who he worked for there. We don't have much of that history. I don't know if my parents had ever asked him or not, but... Um, he came, he probably came to a job waiting for him uh, because he went directly to Cumberland, Maryland, uh, where a German grower, immigrant, had opened the first carnation greenhouse in the country. Oh, it was the first one? one. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah, why Cumberland? I'm not sure, but I guess they thought maybe it was yeah. fairly equidistant to big markets, you know. Yeah, I think it, Philadelphia was a big um, outlet for carnation growing back in the day. And I think it's probably, you know, Maryland, Cumberland, Maryland would be close yeah, enough that had right. farmland. So, yeah, they had yeah. Philly, they had, you know, given rail lines, Chicago, there was, you know, so they were shipping by rail back then. Um, anyway, my father was born there and my father didn't speak English until he went to grade school. Uh, they only spoke German at home. I've got a lot of information. I've been digging in the Smithsonian and someday I have to go there personally. They literally have things in shoe boxes that you can root through if you arrange. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, um, worked there to start with and then moved to Long Island where um, more of the cousins have been previously and maybe maybe the uh, the opportunities were better there or maybe the pay was better I'm not sure why I maybe they figured out Cumberland wasn't the greatest place to market from but 
but uh, <laughs> Long Island was was huge flower growing area and stayed so till I yeah probably went to college or thereabouts. Um, but uh, the point is, it was upheaval that brought you know my father out of Germany. There's got to be a reason they. <laughs> they yeah, you leave. You don't. You don't leave because you just feel like it. <laughs> go five thousand miles on a boat to some unknown place. Uh, so, yeah. <clears throat> but there was that established floral industry in uh, Central Long Island. Uh, we grew up in Bayport, and there were probably I don't know a dozen huge flower uh, greenhouse ranges in Bayport, and also in the adjoining towns and all around. Um, huge rose growers and orchid growers and snaps and a lot of mums growing outdoors under cloth out there. Um, so that all went fine and well. <clears throat> uh, my parents had greenhouses uh, eventually. And then of course the war came along. Uh, and my father had two brothers and a sister and the draft board in their wisdom decided, well, um, three of four of you need to serve in the military and oh, one wow. of you can stay home and take care of the four families, but you, have to, oh my gosh. But you have to have a defense job. So, so much for flowers because they weren't really useful oh. in war. Um, so he got a job driving a refrigerated truck, hauling meat out to an army camp on the end of Long Island, Fort Drum it was called. Um, and, and uh, the railroad, of course, uh, hauled stuff out there too. There was a lot of freight rail uh, beforehand because of flower growing and other things, but uh, became more important during the war. Well, after the war, the woman whose company he worked for with the refrigerated trucks owed him so much back pay and was out of business, basically. She gave him the trucks and the well, what was, was a non-business at that point. Um, yeah. As, as his back pay. So all these refrigerated heavy duty trucks. Well, at the same time, the railroad, not having defense contracts anymore to keep it afloat, dropped its rail service to the island, which dropped a method for Long Island growers to send their cut flowers to the New York market. But here was my father with these trucks, refrigerated trucks. So when I grew up, I grew up the entire time my father was in the flower trucking business, along with two of his brothers, and or his two brothers, I should say. Um, and he hauled, we had as many as four 40-foot refrigerated trucks at one time, I guess and haul flowers every night or five nights a week to New York and twice a week to uh, Philadelphia, Wilmington, Baltimore, and Washington. So I grew up <laughs> uh, riding on the trucks for one thing, but seeing lots of flowers grown and all the, so basically it's like a, a dairy run. You go to the, pick up your flowers, you know, there's nobody there, you show up at night, your day starts after supper and you go pick up these flowers from all these places and haul them to New York. You get into New York around one o'clock in the morning, you're done by about three and you go home and eat breakfast and go to bed. Uh, My goodness. 
So there was that many growers still on Long Island that you could truck that many flowers off. Yeah, of Long in fact, Island. there were two companies uh, doing it. My father's was the larger one, uh, but another old German grower uh, had a smaller company with the one to two trucks. And there was plenty of work for them all, yeah. So what about what year was that, like years was that? What, what decade was that? Well, um, probably from about 50 to 70, you know, those 20 okay. years for sure. Yeah. Um, and then of course along came- the Jumbo jets. <laughs> jumbo jets, well, air, air freight. Yeah, and the war on drugs and South and Central American flowers and the, you know, um, status that they were, yeah, which all just basically <laughs> sent that. At, oh, and then you know, uh, cost of fuel, changes yeah. in fuel. All of these greenhouses on Long Island had mountains of coal. You know, the, one of the other reasons they were along the, the rail line was that they needed huge piles of coal to keep them heated in the wintertime. Um, there are very few left. There's one place called Bayport Flower Houses, which was about three blocks from where I grew up that is still in business, but they managed, they managed to morph into garden center, uh, plus retail flower shop, plus growing a little of their own stuff, plus no, house plants, potted plants, so on. Right. A lot of that original facility is still there. Yeah, I think it's just, I just want to like pause and recognize that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, Long Island was a flower island. And then in the 70s, just like everywhere across the U.S., the whole flower industry changed. And that's when exports, or well, imports, I should say, imports became the predominant, you know, way of florists getting flowers in the U.S. And that's not that long ago. Like, it shouldn't be that hard for us to sort of reclaim that market share if if we're tenacious enough, right. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but it's still within, like, your memory and a lot of other people's memory of what it was like to get flowers that were grown here in the U.S. and um, and to know the people that were we're riding those trucks in at 1 a.m. and so forth. So that gives me hope somehow <laughs> to hear that. Well, eventually, of course, my both my brother and my cousins who all worked on the, they were the drivers after my, you know, my father and uncle were driving originally, but the, the kids took over the driving. And then eventually there starts to be a point where it's not making enough money for all of these families. One of the brothers dropped out and went in the transmission business. <laughs> and uh, the, but the cousins took it over, at which point my father, who is mid-50s maybe, decided, well, I want to, of course, go back to growing flowers because that's what we do. So again, this is, you know, this is, <laughs> this is how life really works. You know, you, you just got to, Role with the situation which we're doing. Uh, so he decided, well, oh, and my mother, all the time I was growing up, by the way, grew flowers alongside our house on a vacant acre that nobody used. <laughs> so we did. <laughs> uh, the owner, I don't know that I ever even met him, I think. Uh, anyway, 
so she she always had of course free freight <laughs> on the truck yeah, uh, yeah so she basically you know made a, a decent amount of money to buy us our school uniforms and that sort of thing uh but anyway uh, as, as my father uh transitioned out of the trucking business he decided that they would decide to grow flowers again on a bigger scale and so we and decided to do that in Delaware. Oh. <laughs> and, and Delaware because there was a gap in the progression of spring season up the East Coast where flowers would come in from Carolinas and Virginia yeah. and Jersey. But there was that little blank spot in between Virginia and Jersey which just happened to be Delaware. Oh, that is so fascinating to me because I'm thinking like, I don't know any flower farms in Delaware right now. <laughs> so this is like, why not? <laughs> and it's it's really ugly dirt down there. It's gray clay, but it's really fertile actually. Clay is incredibly fertile stuff. Hmm. Uh, it's got a lot of nutrients in it. It's just hard to work. Yeah. So I think for three seasons, we, you know, think, talk about my 45 minute commute to the farm here. Yeah, we had a... <laughs> <laughs> we had quite a few hour commute to the, <clears throat> the farm in Delaware. And basically we camped out there in summertime, several summers in a row. Yeah, we wow. had a 16 foot camping trailer parked next to a, a barn where the house had burned down. Um, we had a, a canvas outhouse, uh, <laughs> which had the most fetching shadow puppetry. And when the, with the rising sun, you know. Oh my goodness. This sounds bucolic though. I have to say this probably sounds like a wonderful dream. Well, it so was bucolic right enough that if we went away for the weekend, we'd come back and find horse manure in the barn where the Amish kids would come and bundle in the hayloft, you know, <laughs> and park, park their buggy inside and close the door so nobody could catch it. Close the door. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Of course, well, <laughs> we had the benefit of Amish kids to hire there, which are wonderful work. Right. Yes, they know how to work. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we we basically commuted summers to the to get that thing off the ground until we established a residence there. And then they grew there till they retired and I grew with them part of that time. But kids being who they are, have their own ideas. <laughs> And uh, I eventually went to school and then decided I didn't know what I was doing in school and dropped out of school and went to the Peace Corps, <laughs> came back and went to school again and then dropped out within a half semester <laughs> because I still didn't know what the heck I was doing and got drafted, of course. Oh, no. And then... Uh, went back to the land with my hippie friends. Yeah. Uh, to a, built a cabin in West Virginia and tried flower growing there because you got to keep trying. <laughs> right, right. I was going to ask if you're just like, I will never grow flowers again and then somehow ended up doing no, it. Or you always that's what I did. So flowers. that's what I knew how to do. We rented a house for $15 a month. Uh, the first month was free from mowing the grass. Um, <laughs> anyway, I. I, we had a little patch of ground there and I tried growing flowers there, but the supply, the uh, 
shipping links just weren't there. You know, the bus from Delaware, we used to ship gobs of flowers on the bus unless we had unless we had enormous amounts, in which case we drive to New York with them. But yeah, the underneath those uh, trailways, buses, yeah, like the you greyhounds put, and stuff. You could put 30 four foot cardboard flower boxes. So the ship's dry, everything is shipped dry, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I never realized that. I've never heard anybody talk about shipping flowers under the buses. That's well, a new one. Of course, we had somebody at the other end to come fetch them at Port Authority mm -hmm. because my cousin was still in the drugging business. So he, would, he was the other end oh, right. of the link that made it work. Uh, although there are there are wholesalers who will come to to uh, bus stations to pick up if it's arranged with them, so it's not you know I think it can still be done, and if it's done overnight when things are cool, uh, you, you know you can get away with it. Yeah, definitely. I never thought of that. So let me ask you, if I may, like having witnessed all of the things that have happened in the flower industry in the U.S. over many decades. Do you feel like we're in a good place right now or do we need to make a lot of changes? Does it feel like we're headed the right direction? Or are there anything that, you know, with your perspective, can you say like, hey, I wish, you know, the flower growers in the US right now or anywhere in the world at this point, you know, we've got to understand that small scale flower growing is a global enterprise now and, and lots of people listening to this podcast will be from other countries, but just since you know the U.S. market, what what's your perspective on the U.S. market as it stands now? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, I think we might be building a culture of buying flowers more often with mass marketing in the grocery stores and and so on. It, they, that just needs to be uh, educated into a much more uh, environmental environmentally friendly model. Um, a local model and you know all of those things are still strong um, tendencies in in the population to at least pay lip service to and I think that's you know that's the, the big opportunity here is is local and regional mean something still um, and as as uh, global warming becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger issue and sustainability uh, plays into that and local local energy sources play into that. I, I don't see why it doesn't have a chance of, of capitalizing on all of that stuff and, 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 and partnering with all of that stuff. So, yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's always a wild ride. Like you said, you can never, even if you've got a family who's been doing it for, for generations, you still don't really necessarily know where <laughs> where the um, truck is headed, so to speak, but. Uh, well, one thing that's impressive is, is uh, online marketing. You know what, it doesn't attract me at all. <laughs> I don't even wanna buy, <laughs> a, you know, a shirt online. I, <laughs> much, right, uh, right. Anytime I order flowers for an occasion to somebody in another part of the country, I'll get it. I'll look up the flower shops there and I'll get on the phone with them and I'll yeah. tell them look, <laughs> I'm not going to take pom-poms and carnations. <laughs> right. I want free Nothing generic, I want folks. It now, you know? <laughs> no, I like that. Yeah. But yeah, online marketing really is changing the face of local flowers. And I think COVID just pushed that more, more rapidly yes. 
you know, than it ever would have. I know for my business, I've always had an online shop, but I didn't really even sell flowers through the online shop so much as like, you know, workshops or other things. And now it's like everybody wants to just go on the internet, click on a picture, buy it and get it delivered to their door. And there's such a immense appreciation for flowers right now um, that I think as long as smaller scale growers can really ramp up their direct to retail online capacity, I think we can really make a huge dent in that percentage of sales in terms of across the nation um, and get back some of the, the market share that the imports took away from us. So yeah, I think it's, I'm, I'm actually hopeful. I think it's, a, I think we're in a good place as long as we play our cards right. <laughs> Just have to pay attention to what, what does work and what doesn't and quit trying to do what doesn't. <laughs> And, yeah. and, you know, you've got to roll with the punches, basically. Go with the flow. Um, anything that almost every decision I've made in my life, I'm going to do this, you know, turned out not to be so. I, you know, I started out saying I was going to uh, go to ag school. Well, the reason I didn't, I, I did sort of go to ag school, but I had to go to Catholic college because my parents wouldn't accept anything else. And uh, there was a three, three two-year program with um, Indiana University, I think it was, or Purdue, Purdue. And so, but I never got to the ag part of that because <laughs> I soon switched my major to pre-med and said, what the heck am I doing in pre-med after a while? And, you know, that's when I went in the Peace Corps and, I, and they, <laughs> again, decisions, they said, well, where would you like to go? What would you like to do? Well, I'd like an ag program in South America. Well, what they told me was, yeah, well, we got this engineering program in Bangladesh. How about that? And I said, sure. So <laughs> you, go, wow. you go with what's available. It wasn't Bangladesh yeah. at the time. It was yeah. Pakistan. But anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. Usually it's take the opportunities you get and, yeah. and make the best of them. Absolutely. So one final big picture question and then i i should let you go because i've taken up so much of your time and you've been so generous but i always sit here and think as a farmer who i consider myself sort of midway in my flower farming career i'm not at the beginning and i'm not at the end i'm kind of hovering in the middle at the moment and i suppose i'll be in the middle for a while but i'm always curious what growers who have been through the whole journey would wish that they had done or had not done. And I'm not talking like, what's your advice for new growers? I'm actually talking, what's your advice for a grower that's established, um, has a really firm foundation and now should start thinking about the future big picture, like retirement and things like that. Like I know you told me about your sprinter and how that was a, a specific choice of yours that you made. So can you offer any advice basically to me <laughs> and let everybody else listen to the advice? <laughs> <laughs> well, I really think uh, if there's a machine out there that can do something for you in an environmentally friendly way or, you know, even a hand-operated tool, you should buy it. <laughs> Go buy it. Mm. You, know, mm. you, you can justify the cost because it's probably going to last longer than you are. You could sell it for half of what you bought it for, or two-thirds, or maybe as much. Certain, certain things like tractors never lose their value. Some of them mm -hmm. go up like that. Alice Chalmers G, if you know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a genius idea, and probably almost every one of them ever made is still in use. 
and selling for 10 times what they originally cost. What they were, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I believe in tools to help save your body. So figure out easier ways to do things. Um, if you haven't got a self-employment IRA, <laughs> a set, you should get one. An exit strategy is not a bad idea. Uh, I always felt I was gonna be trapped in this forever. Not that I didn't like doing it. I just couldn't figure out if I ever decided that I didn't want to do it, how would I stop? Because, hmm. because even though uh, on its face, it's seasonal up north here, um, it's an over, there, these are overlapping seasons. You know, you're planting yeah. all kinds of things for the coming years from perennials to uh, biennials and so on. Um, so the only way I actually... <laughs> was able to step out of it gracefully and, and willingly because all of a sudden I, I saw this opportunity was uh, Fairfield Flowers, which we didn't talk about, but which was a cooperative marketing uh, group. Um, one of the other growers in Fairfield said that she absolutely needed to put more flowers on the truck uh, in order to stay with the group. And I was at the time supplying about half of the truck. And I said, I can fix you up with that. I'll make room. <laughs> you can step up to what I'm doing here. Uh, so within a week of that decision, I had pre-sold all of my equipment uh, or given it away in, case, in the case of the one that I don't own, um, the one dragon, uh, and uh, figured out where we were going to go on our first trip. I love hearing that because I often think the same thing. Like, I don't know how you would exit from this. So for you, it was just a, somebody happened to ask you the right question and you decided that was it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's not exactly a real good exit strategy. <laughs> but, well, but it but is at least an example of an exit strategy. <laughs> one to pay attention for, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so did, were you always on rented land then, or did you have to sell yes. more than just, you know, the equipment? Rented or free. So my mother grew on free land in Delaware. Actually, we owned land in Delaware. We owned 20 acres. And we, of that, we grew about 10 acres of flowers, I guess. Uh, but then in, in uh, Wisconsin here, I grew again on free land, which is wow. great, <laughs> especially really good land uh, and it wasn't free except I mean it was free in the sense that I didn't pay money for it but I put in a whole lot of time on the, the CSA just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours so and other skills yeah I'm just thinking it it probably made exiting a little bit easier than and absolutely that you didn't have to yeah move off your farm or sell your farm or you know all those things that would come with retiring and trying to to exit gracefully so yeah one downside of that was there was a lot of equipment that i couldn't sell immediately that i had to haul home and pile in my backyard here <laughs> oh, no. it's been, i still have hundreds and hundreds of feet of blue lay flat if you need any uh <laughs> maybe although it'd probably be a lot to ship over and, here you know maybe an acre of rust of uh row cover <laughs> but uh, Wow. Um, I had this 500-gallon irrigation tank sitting by my house for a long time. And finally, this year, I went on a 
a tear and I decided I'm going to get rid of things or use them for something. So I now have a, okay. I now have a 500 gallon tool shed in my garden. Do you? <laughs> set it up on amazing. End, set it up on end and cut a door in it, hinge the door. And it's great. <laughs> wow. That's so clever. I love it. I, I just got a 750 gallon water retention tank for catching rainwater. And it's so big. I, I was like, oh, I could totally just make this into like a tiny house Absolutely. inside of here. <laughs> So, uh, the neighbors shed is another my good idea. tool shed is a porta potty, but <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's a tool shed. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I do want to make sure to point. I want you to tell this story about how you um, bought the Sprinter van. Uh, remind me, I think it was 2002. You said, but with the intention of turning it into your into your Scooby bus, right? Is that right? Yeah. Tell us, tell us that story real quick. Well, first of all. Uh, FedEx was the only ones who had printers, and uh, the, that was the first one I ever saw uh, in this town. And then I saw one other privately owned one. So I think I bought the second privately owned one in Madison. Um, and I had to go to Indiana to get it. But I first researched it and, and realized and found out that at the time in 2002, and I think they're possibly better even now, um, First of all, the fuel economy was better than anything else on the road by far. And the long-term history of these things was that 80% of them lasted to 250,000 miles and 60% of them would go beyond 500,000. Wow, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Which is why FedEx <laughs> bought them because it's a no-brainer. You're mm -hmm. saving money everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and so I knew this thing was gonna pay for itself. Uh, so it cost, 20 grand at the time, I think, or 30, 30, I guess it was 30, uh, brand new. Um, but I realized this thing is going to last longer than I needed at my age. And, and so I can justify it by knowing right now that this is going to be my RV come retirement. So that is actually one of the only decisions I ever made in life that came out the way I planned. <laughs> So now you have this amazing um, ability to just travel around the country in your retirement, but you bought, you, you made that purchase as a business purchase way, way long ago. I think that's a brilliant strategy. It's not only paid for itself and what I earned directly from selling. I also rented it to Fairfield Flowers for many, many, many seasons and paid for it again. Uh, so, and you know, it, it costs to keep up, but uh, it costs to buy a new one too. So uh right it's it's really good as it's you know it's the cheapest running rv on the road and i gotta say without exaggeration i have the best refrigeration of any i mean that's the best ac <laughs> of any RV ac of ever. anybody <laughs> now does it have heat though could you heat it it, it has How does a that work? heater that runs off the diesel tank yeah it's called a libasto uh, is they're pricey little gizmos but yeah and then it also plugs in so you can run a little space heater, which is easier. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. You, you are, you are living the dream. I can't wait to someday, hopefully retire <laughs> and be able to, be able to emulate what you've done. Cause I think it's fantastic. 
Um, and I, I love watching your retirement from afar. So, um, well, I think we're going to wrap it up for now, but I'm just so grateful for all that you've shared today, Joe. You've given us so much food for thought. You've really helped me think about how to ease the labor of my own farm operation and also given me some great ideas for new uh, crops to grow in the grass family, <laughs> an undervalued uh, crop category, uh, and just some great wisdom overall. So thank you for sharing that with us. I really appreciate all the time and all that you've given the flower growing community as a whole. You've definitely been somebody who's been incredibly generous with your hard earned knowledge. All right, all right. that's enough. <laughs> that's enough, sorry, <laughs> uh, Well, thank you. It's Joe. been fun. Yeah, good, good. It's been fun for me too. So you take care, okay? <laughs> Alrighty, bye-bye. Bye. Today's episode of No-Till Flowers was produced by Ginny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers with support from No-Till Growers. Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music, at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash no-till growers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers.